And uh, we got a special treat for you. We, uh, we really want to show you the opening of Adventure Avenue Theater. So if you would, grab your purses and your Bibles. We're going to walk over there. Just kidding. You're like, okay. We got this little video thing we're going to do, a little live feed over there from Adventure Avenue. Those guys are having an awesome time in the new Adventure Avenue Theater. Today is the first day, so we're going to see if we can make a little connection here. Dan, are you there? Hey, I'm here, Lance. How about you? Are you out there? We're here. You guys say hi, Dan. You ready? One, two, three. Here we go. Oh, you guys are great. Well, we're outside of here, Adventure Avenue Theater that just opened up. I'm here with Cosmo. Say hi, Cosmo. In fact, Cosmo doesn't talk. He just waves a lot. Wave again for him. Yeah, that's right. Well, we're so excited. You guys have given uh, $100,000 to our new space at New Spring Project. We're actually doing four phases. This is just one out of the four phases. And uh, just to set the record straight, someone asked if we spent the $100,000 just in this theater. We didn't. We didn't pay a fraction of that. Now, I'd like to turn Dale loose with $100,000 on what he could create. But uh, you guys have given over $100,000 to uh, New Space at New Spring, and uh, we need a total of $220,000 to do all the four phases. This phase, the phase, the balcony in the theater, the updated uh, restrooms out here in the Grand Foyer, and then the coffee area and the bookstore. And so uh, if you could help with that, that'd be great. But we right now want to go into the theater and see what's going on. So follow me, guys. Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing? Hey, buddy. Hey, how's it going? Hey, uh, we're talking to all their moms and dads out there. They're out there with Pastor Hoover getting ready to hear a message. And uh, we just want to hear from you what you think of your new theater. Hi, moms and dads. Hey, we love the new theater. Thank you guys so much for giving to make this thing possible. Well, that is great. Tell me some of the things you have in your clubhouse there, buddy. I got flowers. Yeah. Flowers, and we've got indoor plumbing. Indoor plumbing. And a refrigerator. And a refrigerator. Yeah. What do you have in your refrigerator? Diet Coke. Ooh, Pastor would like Diet Coke, wouldn't you, Pastor? Diet Coke's my favorite, especially with vanilla. Oh, with vanilla. Yeah. Hey, and, and over here, I know we have Pluto and Frazzle and Y, and they're going to be in here with the kids. And uh, Carla, why don't you come on up? Carla is our director of Adventure Avenue Theater, along with Daryl. And Carla, tell us what the kids are going to be learning today in Adventure Avenue Theater. We're going to have so much fun. You guys all know what the bottom line is for February. Can the yeah. puppet say it with me? Yeah. Jesus can do anything. Oh, that's great. Jesus can do anything. And we're so excited to be here, Pastor. And sometime, Buddy and I were talking before we came to you, and we think it'd be really, really cool if you would preach a sermon in here, and we'll broadcast it out to the big people out there. What do you think? I'd love it. And if Buddy will share one of his Diet Cokes, I might come back today. Yeah, well, Pastor said if you would uh, share one of your Diet Cokes, he might come right back here right now and (laughs) preach a sermon from here. How about that, Buddy? I'll get him to. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, Pastor, you have a great time out there. We're about ready to rock this place in here. Thanks for everybody that gave. It's Thanks, awesome. Guys. We're going to have a great time. Thank Appreciate you. it so much. Awesome. That'll make you wish you were four years old again. Good morning, and welcome to the third weekend service at New Spring Church. In case this is your first time here during this series, we're in a series called Silence. And it's all about going through tough times in life when you would like God to to show up. And I don't mean to see him visibly or to hear him audibly, but when we're going through hard times, what we'd really like is for God to change our circumstances, right? When we pray, isn't that what we pray for? God, get me out of this mess. Or at least we would like for God to explain to us why we're going through hard times. When I'm, when I'm having a tough time, I, I can almost make it if I know that there's a purpose to it. Aren't you that way? 
I mean, if you know that there's some sort of significance to it, that even, my, even though I'm going through pain, it's somehow bringing about good, there's something that helps us go through that. But I've been through times in my life, as I'm guessing you have too, when you went through a really hard time and you asked God to change your environment and it didn't change, and beyond that, you didn't have a clue why you were going through it. In fact, have you ever been in a circumstance when you, when you said to yourself, I can't possibly see how any good can come of this? And if you're a Christ follower, you might quote Romans 8, 28 to yourself, which is a great thing. It says God works everything for good. But if you were really honest about what you saw that particular day, you would have to say, I don't see one thing good about all this. And so dealing with that silence is really a challenge. We started talking about last week. Today, we're going we're gonna to take it up another notch, and we're going we're gonna to talk about, you know, hearing unwanted noise. Because if you've ever really been through bad times, and you're desperately trying to listen for God to explain to you why you're going through what you're going through, it, it's, it's tough enough to, to deal with that. But then people start coming along, and they start trying to explain it to us, and they start trying to tell us what we must have done to deserve it. They start telling us what we can do to get out of the rain. Uh, and then how many of us have just dealt with nosy people, you know? Just people that, you know, they, have, they look like the wicked witch. I mean, not really, but I'm just saying. When it gets right down to it, they just have this long nose, and, and they just poke it in. And, and, they you know, they're very concerned about what you're going through. But you know that when they leave you, they're going to burn up the telephone wires or, or you know, they're going to call their friends or cell phone. They're going give, to give them all the details of your crisis. And you hear that, and you're thinking, God, it's hard enough just to go through this, but to deal with all these people. And then there are times that you have well-meaning people. They, they really care. They want to help, but they don't know what to say, and they go ahead and say it anyway. And then when you hear it, it's like, oh, that feels like a whip. That person meant that to sound good, but it just feels like somebody hit me with a whip. Well, today I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about it from two angles. I'm going to talk about it when you're the person going through the storm, and you're having to put up with unwanted noise. And then I'm going to turn around and talk to all of us about when we're called in to help somebody that we love who's going through hard times. And hopefully we'll get some real practical advice out of today's message to help us deal with unwanted noise. You're in a church today, and I think you're in the greatest church in America, but that's just my personal opinion. And you have to understand that there's the bias built in of serving this church for almost 23 years. But I honestly believe, and I think I could provide empirical evidence, that this is the greatest church in America. I just want to tell you this, that even at New Spring Church, you have to be careful who you listen to when you're going through a tough time. And I'll tell you why. I'd, I'd assume that 90% 90% plus, maybe 99% of New Spring Church would be in one category that is always helpful when you're going through a hard time. Um, and, and I say this about every church. A, a, a church will draw two kinds of people. A church like us will draw two kinds of people. And hopefully, you know, all of us are in this, in this majority group. A church like us will draw people who are in love with the message of grace. Grace in case you're wondering what I mean by that, grace just means giving. The word grace comes from the Greek word charis, which means gift. Someone has defined grace using the letters of the word grace to start letters of new words. Someone has described grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. And New Spring Church will draw a lot of people like me and like you who are in love with grace. We know we're sinners. We know we've got a lot of stuff in our lives that's not good. I know personally that without God's grace, I would go straight to hell when I died. I don't question that for a moment. I could tell you all kinds of reasons why I would go to hell when I, would die, when I died, with the exception of God's grace. I am in love with God's message of grace. The Bible says that God takes people who are flawed, broken, and God puts them back together again. And everything that takes place in this church 
when I teach or when Lance leads, leads worship or, or the kids' ministry gets together, we're going to talk about grace all the time, how good God is. And so I would think that there are many of us who come here, and we were drawn here because of God's message of grace. But there's a psychology. This has absolutely really nothing to do with scriptural things or spiritual things. There's a psychology in play that draws certain people to, to any kind of church and maybe even our kind of church. And there are a handful of people like that, I guess, here. I don't know who they are. Just statistically, the case would be that they would be here. These are people who feel like deep down inside God has called them to straighten out the rest of the world. And they have just sort of an edge about them, and they can tell you what's wrong with everybody. They criticize, they gossip, they're very pious people. When in reality, they're very insecure people, and what they really want to do is they want to leverage God and get God on their side so that they juice up their own opinions and ideas. You really don't want to listen to those people when you're going through a storm because they will mess you up because they're messed up. The reason why I go into that today is we're going to be talking about Job. And Job is going to have three, let me put my Bible down so I can do this, three friends who are in that last category. They're very religious, very pious, very sanctimonious, very, very judgmental. And Job is going through a meltdown. His life is just cratering on him. And these guys show up and talk to him. But before we get to that, let me just do a little review in case you weren't here last weekend. Let me just tell you what Job is all about. If you, if you could find Job, it would be somewhere in the middle of your Bible. We believe that Job is the first book written in the history of the Bible. Now, it's not the oldest chronological history. That would be Genesis. But we believe that Job was the first book that was written. We don't know who wrote it. Maybe Job wrote it. But it's the story of a guy whose life falls apart. 42 chapters about how his life falls apart. Now, Job doesn't know what's going on because very obviously Job doesn't have the book of Job. Well, you and I do. But Job doesn't. He doesn't have a clue why his life is falling apart. But in Job chapter 1, we learn God is in heaven and he's calling in the angels for them to report to him. And they're coming in. God doesn't need their information. He knows what they've been doing, but they have to give an account to him, just like you and I will have to give an account to God someday. But these guys, these angels come in periodically. They're reporting to God on what they're doing, what, what their sectors are, and what they've been up to, and so on. And it seems that even though Lucifer, the fallen angel, the head of the demons, the guy who rebelled against God and got himself kicked out of heaven, even though he's not among God's faithful angels, he shows up there too. We saw this last week. God says to Lucifer, what have you been up to? He said, I've been out patrolling. I've been checking up on people. I've been making a list, checking it twice. And I couldn't tell you who's naughty. And God just stopped him like this, and God said, have you thought about my servant Job? Wouldn't you like to be, wouldn't that be great when, 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 the, when Satan comes to, to, you know, to criticize believers? Wouldn't it be great for God to call your name and say, what about her? She's doing it right. And God said to Lucifer, what about Job? And Satan sneered at God and said, well, yeah, he, he, he serves you all right, but it's because you give him all these toys. Job was not only the best guy in the world, he was the richest guy in the world. Those two things don't often go together, but they did with Job. I said to you last week that when you saw a Bentley in the poorest part of town, it wasn't a drug dealer. It was Job buying groceries for all poor people and, you know, paying, paying college tuition for orphans. I know those are all anachronisms, but you get my point. And, and, and so Satan said to God, the only reason why he serves you is that, and I love this. Listen, if you want, to think, you want something to ask God about when you pray, ask God for this. Lucifer said to God, he serves you because you have put a fence around him and you won't let me touch him. Boy, I'd like to have that, wouldn't you? God said, all right. 
You can take things from him, but you can't touch his body. You can't kill him. So in one day, as we saw last week, Job went from being the richest man in the world to by nightfall, he had nothing in his bank account, wiped out totally. But that wasn't the worst part. He had 10 grown kids. They were all having a party in one of the kids' houses. A tornado came in and killed all 10 of the kids. And Job is there at the end of the day with nothing in his pocket and 10 fresh graves. And we closed out last week by the grace of God and the strength of God. Job came to the end of that day and said, I didn't come into this world with anything and I'm not taking anything out. I'm going to find a way to say something good about God. And that's how we left it. Chapter two, the angels are appearing before God and up comes Lucifer. (laughs) God says to Lucifer, did you see what happened there? You said that if, if I let you touch Job and take his stuff away, that he'd curse me. But did you see he blessed me? He said something good about me. And, and one thing you should learn about Satan, he is the father of lies. And there is no truth in him. There is absolutely no integrity in him. Lucifer should have said, God, I was wrong. You were right. But he can't do that. So he just sneered one more time and said, well, skin for skin. You let me touch his body. And he will curse you to your face. And God said, all right, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. And from that moment on, Job was covered with lesions from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. He was in constant pain. He wasted away. He began to stink. People laughed at him and and didn't want anything to do with him. And he went out to the ash pile. And the only relief he could get was by scraping his sores with with a broken piece of pottery. Devastated. I don't think you and I will ever get to where Job got, but we'll get to some places in our lives where things are awfully hard. Where we feel like all the things that matter to us have been taken away. And you ask God for God to show up and do something, and he doesn't. Or you would at least like for someone just to come by and say, hey, this is what God is doing. But you're there, and your life has fallen apart, and it's silent. It's at this moment that you have to be careful about unwanted noise because people will try to come to you and explain it to you and give you advice and tell you what's going on and say, if you had done this, you would have had this outcome. And if you'll just change and do this, if you'll just believe, if you'll just send money to this ministry, or if you'll just listen to me and join my study, or if you'll buy this book, everything will make sense. I want to talk to you today because all of us will be there at some point where we go through a storm and we'll get unwanted noise. Be careful about listening to two kinds of people. The first kind of person you want to be careful about taking advice from is someone who's also going through pain. Because when a person in pain gets advice from another person in pain, that pain can skew the evidence. The first person that talked to Job was Job's wife. And when she saw her husband in this kind of condition, wasting away, foul-smelling, with no answer and no reason, she came to Job and said, do you think you're going to find some way to maintain your integrity in all this? Why don't you just curse God and die? Get it over with. Now, Job's response to her is classic. He said to her, you're talking, this is big, please don't miss this nuance. He said, you're talking like a foolish woman. Did you notice he didn't say you are a foolish woman? He said, you're talking like a foolish woman. He said, you're not a foolish woman, but you're talking like one. In effect, what he said to her is, you're out of character right now. 
See, Job knew that his wife had lost everything just like he had. She had gone to the 10 funeral services of her 10 children just like Job had. She was hurting. It was pain talking to pain. I'm talking to some of you husbands and wives, and you said things to each other in fights and disagreements that are just... You cannot believe you said what you said to your wife. You cannot believe you called your husband what you called your husband. And when you got right down to it, it, really there was nothing that you were disagreeing over. It was just pain talking to pain. You really want to be careful about listening, taking advice from someone who's going through a lot of pain himself or herself. But let me just tell you the group of people that you really want to be careful about when you're going through a crisis, and that is this. When your life is falling apart and it feels like you're paying for all these things in your life, you want to be careful about taking advice from people who didn't buy a ticket to your crisis. Gate crashers, interlopers. Because that's what happened to Job. Three friends show up. I would tell you their names, but they don't matter. (laughs) Some people in life just don't matter a whole lot. And these are very pious guys. These are, these are guys who studied about God. And I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying, listen, these guys didn't know what Job was going through, but they wanted to explain it to him. They felt the pressure to give Job an answer, a wisdom answer, to explain to him why he was dealing with the crisis that he was going through. And so Job, of course, not knowing what was behind this crisis, he continued to maintain his innocence. He's saying, I, can't, I don't know what I've done to deserve this. And that just hacked these guys off, and they just let loose on Job. Now, a few moments ago, I shared with you that Job has 42 chapters. The first two chapters are, explain the, the problems and, and all the difficulties that he encountered. The last four, four or five chapters of the book explain how God comes and works, and I'm giving this away. We'll talk about this in a message called Daylight next week. God came and doubled everything that Job had lost. 35, 36 chapters of this book are taken up with this interchange between Job and these three friends who came by to talk to him. It's a lot of text. I... The other day, about a week ago, I, I was late one night, and I just decided I'd read through the entire book of Job so I could get the feel of all the things that happened. And I listened to, and I read these accusations that Job's friends made against him, and I can't give you the gist of 36 chapters in about a minute, but I'm going to try to do my best. I want to give you a list of 17 things that these guys said to Job. Listen to these things. And these things can make you angry. But listen to what they said to Job. Number one, they said, you gave advice to others. Now you can't handle it when these things happen to you. Number two, if you would return to God, he would help you. Very pious, right? Number three, if you would get rid of your money, God would help you. Number four, you're nothing but a windbag. Number five, and this one makes me so angry. If I could go back in time, I would bust these guys up some, but God knows he doesn't want me into that. But this just makes me so mad. You know, Job's, all, all 10 of his adult kids were killed in a tornado. Here's what they said. Your kids did wrong or this wouldn't have happened. It was well-deserved. He said to Job, number six, you're mocking God. Number seven, you're a corrupt man with a thirst for wickedness. Number eight, because of your wickedness, you will have no children or grandchildren. Number nine, when people see your ruins, they will say, this is the house of a wicked man who rejected God. Number 10, it's because you're a hypocrite. You're pious. There's no end to your sins. Number 11, you must have mistreated widows and orphans. Number 12, you thought the world belonged to you because you were rich. There's never been anyone like you with such a thirst for irreverent talk. Number 14, you chose evil people for companions. Number 15, you want God to tailor his justice for your demands. Number 16, you deserve thee. I left this in quotes in the NLT. They said to Job, you deserve the maximum penalty. And finally, they said, God has sent this suffering to keep you from a life of evil. You can imagine that I haven't given you 36 chapters worth, but 
You get the idea. They were showing up to, in effect, say, Job, you did wrong. Fess up, boy. Straighten up, and God will bless you again. And yet these clowns didn't have any idea what was going on in Job's life. Well, let's, let's get real practical now. We're going to talk about this from two different angles. What if you're the person going through the crisis? Who do you seek out to give you advice? Who do you seek out to give you comfort? And then we're going to flip this thing, and we're going to say, if you love someone who's going through a crisis, how do you help someone who's going through difficult times? And you can read a watch, and you can tell that I'm not going to be able to tell you everything you should know about these two questions. But I want to give you something, because at some point in your my lives, we're going to go through really hard times. And if we're not careful, we'll listen to people who will come around to comfort us, and yet they'll do more damage than good. Who do you listen to when you're going through hard times? First thing I want to say to you is you have a right to shut some people out. I mean, even if you're a Christ follower, it doesn't mean that you have to let any so-and-so come and dump their stuff in your life. I mean, somebody that's just nosy and just wants details. You know, if you've ever been through a hard time, like if you've been through an illness or the loss of a loved one, you can know how difficult it is to have to repeat the details of it over and over and over again. And if any of us, and I, I don't think any New Springer would be this way. If I knew about it, I'd get after you. I don't think anybody here would be one of these nosy people who just has to know. But could I just tell you this? In the name of Jesus, just shut those people out. Just say lovingly, I'm going through all I can handle right now. If you want to do something to help me, just pray for me. Just pray for me. Who do you listen to? Who do you bring into your life? I thought about this because I've never been through what you've been through and vice versa, but I thought the most important people who have helped me go through crises have been true Christ followers who will let me be myself. Could I just say to all of us, and I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm dealing with a question I'm going to tackle in a few minutes, but could I just say to all of us that when, when any of us is ever called into comfort, we cannot make the world right again for the person who's suffering. Often that's what leads us to say foolish things because we have this compulsion inside of us that wants to make things right for this person that we love, but we cannot bring somebody back from the dead. We cannot change people's circumstances. Often what a person who's going through a crisis needs the most is just a few minutes of rest. Just a few minutes where they can be themselves. Where they can remember who they were before they went through the storm. And just feel for a few moments that there's a possibility of coming out of this where you can be right and whole again. If, if you can just find somebody who loves you enough where you won't have to explain details to them anymore. You won't have to tell them everything that you're thinking about. Just find somebody who loves Jesus, who follows Jesus and loves you and will let you be yourself. I would say let, let my hair down, but I don't have very much to let down anymore. Being real transparent with you, I try to always be, but toughest year of my life, without a doubt, was 2004. I don't ever want to see 2004 again. <laughs> and yet there were the seeds of awesome things sown in 2004. Most of you will not know anything that I'm talking about. Because our church has more than doubled in, in size since 2004. But we went through something in 2004 as a church that was very, very difficult. 
Before that, we were a very traditional church. It's hard for a lot of you to imagine this. You know what happens in a traditional church most of the time? The pastor and the people are in a codependent relationship. The, the people out there are already Christ followers. They pretty well know their Bibles. They're going to church. And the minister will sit on the stage or stand on the stage, and he will tell them what they already know, and they will tell him he preached a nice sermon. And they will bring their money and pay the bills, and they'll come back and tee the ball up next week. That's what happens in the average church. In the average church, most churches today are not concerned about who they're reaching. They're concerned about who they're keeping. Because, you know, churches and communities tend to swap members. Instead of being fishers of men, we're keepers of the aquarium. And churches kind of trade market share. Well, you guys know what I'm like. And, and, and I just, you know, for a long time, I just sort of rocked with that. And I'm ashamed that I did because I let us get to where we were. But here we are with this wonderful piece of land, beautiful building, and God's blessings all around us. And yet we had this codependent kind of thing going on. And we weren't really reaching anybody seriously for the Lord. We, we would pay others to do it. But as far as us reaching people, we just weren't. And I, I'm just sharing my heart with you today. So I just thought, wow, man, this is obvious what we need to do. We need to start building bridges to people who don't know Christ. I mean, you need to understand we're not after any other church's members. Our competition is not other Bible-preaching churches. Our competition is this culture that draws people away from Christ. So I determined and, and set my course that we would pay any price to see us become the kind of church that built bridges to people who didn't know Christ. But you see what happens in so many average churches today, there's a subculture that takes place. There's a jargon that the minister speaks in. And, you know, we sing songs that it's kind of like we're a secret club. If you know the signs, you can come in and belong to us. And I thought, that's a long way away from the Great Commission. So I just said we'd be the kind of church that would pay any price to see people who didn't normally go to church come, to, come here and hear about how much God loves them and see their lives transformed, and we have lived that, and we're having the time of our lives today. But we weren't in 2004 because we had a traditional church, and all that they could hear was their leader, their pastor, was trying to change the church in the most uproarious kind of way. And we weren't the only one working through this. Hundreds of churches in the country are working through it. I spend a lot of time helping them today. What was tough for me? And the thing about being a leader is that you have to be there before everybody else is, or else you're not a leader. What was tough was we were going through the pain of all that transition, but we, we didn't see the harvest like we see today. We didn't have these you know, wonderful things happening, and so I was having to explain it and explain it and explain it. And beyond that, we, we, we lost hundreds of people during that time. And that was painful for me because some of those people, many of them, I love and were great friends. And, and for the most part, when people left, it was on good terms. And we just understood. We saw the church differently and love each other and, and, and that. But there were some who left. I never have understood this. This happens nationally. I never understood why some people, when they get angry and they, have to, and they want to leave a church, they want to do as much damage as they can on their way out. I never really understand that spirit. So you can imagine what my life was like. Every day, people were angry at me. And even friends were saying, if you could just explain it. And I explained it and I explained it and I explained it. I did my best to explain it, explain, explain. I remember the worst, probably the worst part of it was late August. 
We have something here at New Spring called Dinner for 12 or Dinner with Pastor, and we kind of set it up because as our church began to grow, we wanted to create a format where people could just have dinner with me, and we do it before power lines, and people kind of come in and sit in, and they, you know, it's, many of you have perhaps been there at those dinners, and, and I love those, and it's a great opportunity for me to speak in a small group and tell them what God is doing in the church. But in those days, power, at Dinner for 12, I was having to explain over and over again why we were going through this turmoil and pain. I remember it was my birthday, August 25th. And I was walking down the hallway to dinner for 12. And as much as I enjoyed that, I thought, I'm going to have to explain this again. And I walked in, and my staff had just invited two couples, Paul and Alice Clark and Rich and Shiloh Joe and all. Now, there are hundreds of people who could have been in their category, but what my staff did was my staff knew that there were with these two people, I didn't have to explain anything. These were friends. For a few moments, I could let my hair down and be myself. I guess I tell you that story. It's kind of uncomfortable to tell in this environment. I'd like to just sort of forget that time because God has been so good since then. But I tell you that story because I'll never forget how I felt that night when I sat down in my chair and looked across the table. And I thought, these people love me no matter what. If you can find those kind of people, that's who you want around you when you're going through the storm. You want people who love Jesus and love you and will let you be yourself. See, what most people don't understand is that when you're going through a real crisis, sometimes you want to talk about it, sometimes you don't want to talk about it. You want the kind of friend who, if you want to talk about it, they'll listen. And if you don't want to talk about it, they won't ask you about it. I know that sounds simple today, but i got to tell you, in my, my personal life, when I'm going through a storm, I want to be around people who will just let me be me. And that's what Job said. I, I want to just take a few moments and read to you some of the things that Job said to his friends. Listen to this. And you have to understand, sometimes he was kind of losing his cool with them. In chapter 12, he said, you people really know everything, don't you? And when you die, wisdom will die with you. Well, I know a few things myself, and you're no better than I am. Who doesn't know these things that you've been saying? He said, you're just talking in platitudes. Here's a powerful line. Guys, if you want to know about how to help people, remember this. This is what Job said. People who are at ease mock those in trouble. In other words, he was saying, you know, when somebody comes into my crisis, if they can turn around and go back to their world and everything's fine, he's saying people at ease mock people or make light of people who are going through hard times. Then let me just go to this next one. In Job 13, verse 4, he said, As for you, you smear me with lies. As physicians, you're worthless quacks. If only you could be silent. Job was singing a few stanzas of you talk too much. Um, Job 16, verse 2. I've heard all this before. What miserable comforters you are. Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep on talking? Look at this. I could say the same things if you were in my place. I could spout off criticism and shake my head at you. But if it were me, I would encourage you. I would try to take away your grief. And then in Job 19, he said, How long will you torture me? How long will you try to crush me with your words? You should be ashamed of treating me so badly. Even if I've sinned, that's my concern, not yours. You think you're better than I am, using my humiliation as evidence of my sin. Guys, those are the kind of people you don't want in your life when you're going through a crisis. Do you hear what Job is saying? It'd be better for you just to be silent than to try to talk to me and say things that are hurting me. What do you do when the roles are reversed? 
I know this question real well because as a, as a pastor, you can imagine countless times I've been called to the quiet room at the hospital. In fact, I've had to be the one on a number of occasions to walk in and tell the family, I'm sorry, but the doctors did everything they could, but your mom's not going to make it or your child's not going to make it. I don't have any magic words to make it go away. What people desperately want at that moment is they'd like the world to be right again, but I can't do that. I have no want. I can't raise the dead. I also know something else, that it's true that God will keep his promises, and there is a life to come, and I say those things, but at that very moment, it doesn't change things. Last week after 11 o'clock service, there was a precious couple. I've been praying for them. They lost triplets before birth. And they met with me after service. And I thought with everything in me, I would do anything if I could find a way to bring those babies back. But I can't. If you want to help somebody who's hurting... You need to change a statement that we tend to make. When we, when we love somebody who's hurting, we instantly try to find some sort of similar situation that we've experienced in our life so that we can identify with him. And that's a good thing. But the problem is a statement pours out of our mouth that winds up doing more damage than good. And the statement that pours out of our mouth is, I know how you feel. Nobody knows how anybody else feels. If you want to help people today, I want to challenge you to change the verb of that sentence to, I care how you feel. It matters to me. How does that flesh out? How does it become real? How does it become practical? I think whenever I I know somebody that's suffering, I want to communicate two things to them. Number one, I'm there and I care. I'm there. I, I can't change it, but I'm there. If you need me, I'm there. I'm available. I'm there and I care. There's a great story out of American, American sports that really bears out what I'm trying to say. The great Jackie Robinson was the first African American to break the color barrier in pro baseball in the late 50s. Jackie Robinson was a phenomenon, a legend. Hard to imagine, but back in those days, racism was so rampant in the United States that many Americans could not imagine an African-American joining a Major League Baseball team. Can you believe that? Branch Rickey, the manager of the Dodgers, decided to call Jackie Robinson up from the minor league team to the Dodgers. And some of the players on the Dodgers, believe this, some of the, some of the players on the Dodgers got up a petition to suggest and demand that Jackie Robinson not be on their team. And they were signing it, you know. We don't want this African-American on our team. And they brought the petition to the captain of the Dodgers, Pee Wee Reese, another legend. And Pee Wee Reese said, I'm not signing that. He had just come back from Korea. He said, I, I've been fighting. I, I've been in war. All I want to do is play baseball. I don't want to get caught up in all this junk. Can I tell you something today? If you've got time to be a racist, you'll wait to, you, have, you, don't have an, you don't have enough to do. 
You got too much time on your hands. If you got time enough to be nosy, if you got time enough to be critical of other people, you got way too much time on your hands. I love what <laughs> I love what he said. He, he, he said, "I don't have time for this kind of thing, and I'm not going to sign your petition." And probably because of of this captain on the team saying that the petition went nowhere and Jackie Robinson was called up and he became a Dodger. Wish I could tell you that things went great after that, but they went horribly. Everywhere Jackie Robinson went in every stadium, he, he heard the boos. People would spit at him and fans would spit at him and, and players, you know, would, would try to throw bean balls at him and brush him back off and, and they would throw balls and try to hit him in the head. And when he was playing at second base and when runners would come by, they would deliberately spike him. And Branch Rickey had made a deal with, with Jackie Robinson when he called him up. And this, isn't this, isn't this crazy? Branch Rickey said, you have to promise me that you won't retaliate or even say anything for two years, no matter what people do to you. And so there Jackie Robinson was in that awful situation, playing the game, hearing the taunts, the boos, the spikings, the bean balls. He couldn't even say anything about it. I've read the story many times and I'm about to tell you and there's only one little variant so I'm going to give it to you. I can't seem to tell whether it was at Brooklyn Stadium or if it was in Cincinnati. I'm not sure which stadium but I do know the rest of it. It all happened because everybody tells the same story after that. Jackie was the second base and he made an error. Baseball players do that. They get credited with an error and the fans begin to boo. But we all know what it's like. I mean, there's a moment when the booze should die down and the game should go on, but the booze didn't die down. They just kept on and kept on and kept on and kept on. They kept raining booze down on Jackie Robinson. And he stood there at second base. And, and, and in a sense, surely the quietness of his own pain, and yet at the same time juxtaposed against the cacophony of all those booze that were raining down. And I mean, it just went on. And it was very clear. It wasn't, we're mad at you because you made an error. So we hate you because you're black. And we wish you weren't in our sport. They just kept on and kept on. And Jackie stood out there at second base with his head down, listening to all those booze rain down. And all of a sudden, the great shortstop, Pee Wee Reese, walked over at second base and just stood next to Jackie Robinson. And then he slipped his arm around Jackie's shoulders. Jackie Robinson would later say, that arm around my shoulder saved my career. And in 1999, when Pee Wee Reese died, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, where they had his service, Mrs. Robinson came and found Mrs. Reese and said, what your husband did not only changed the world, it changed our lives forever. When I thought about that story, it really resonated with me because think about what P.B. Reese did. He went over there and he put his arm around Jackie's shoulders to say, I care. I'm there and I care. Let's pray. Father, I pray for people who are going through tough times today. I know there are many. Lord, help us as friends to be there and to care. Keep us from saying foolish things that do harm and not good. Father, if there's any of us here that tend to be judgmental and try to leverage your name in order to put our opinions across, convict our hearts. And Father, one more time, I just want to ask for help for people who are going through hard times. Even in what appears to be silence, help them to know that you are indeed working and you love them.
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just pray for another minute, please. If you're a Christ follower, you're going to go through hard times like everybody else. I know I've been through a few. I'm going to talk to you about some this morning. You know, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through hard times without Jesus. Because he is the one I can always tell everything to. The person that I I usually tell everything to is Mary Alice. And I have the greatest wife in the world and she'll always listen to me. But there have been times in my life where I was going through such pain I couldn't even put it into words. I tried to explain what I felt like and I couldn't. And then I would go into a room somewhere by myself and close the door and I'd fall on my knees and I would just pray three words. God, you know. You know. That prayer has gotten me through some really tough times. God, you know. You know everything. I can't imagine what it would be like to go through the tough times in life and not have Jesus. And the deal is this. He loves you so much, he doesn't want you to go through hard times without him. The Bible tells us this, that if you will invite Jesus into your life, he will come in. He said, I'm knocking at the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody opens the door, Jesus said, I'll come in. And we'll get together. But when Jesus comes in, he brings a lot of things with him. First of all, he brings forgiveness of all your sins, past, present, and future. He brings a relationship with God. He has adoption papers to adopt you into God's family. He writes your name in the census book of heaven. And he brings eternal life with him. He's awesome. The Bible says this, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to give you a prayer. I'm going to pray this prayer. You don't have to use my words. You can use any words you want to. But if you want some words to use, you can pray these. And if you mean them from your heart, Jesus will come into your life and you'll never go through a storm by yourself again. Pray with me. Jesus, I know I've done wrong. I've sinned against you. But I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me and save me. Make me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer as people have done in both services already this weekend, I don't have one up here, but I have a gift I want to give you. It's just a little packet. It's a, a, a um, vinyl packet on the inside there's some DVDs and some great stuff to help you know what it means to follow Jesus just great it's free it won't cost you anything if you pray to receive Christ today I want to give you one what you can do is you can take your worship folder there's a detachable panel if you just put your name on there and you can check the box that says I prayed to receive Jesus as my savior you can oh I didn't detach that very well did I (laughs) sorry in any event you can um, detach that card and then you can drop it in the boxes by the back doors or the bottom of the staircases. If you have an address on there, I'll mail you one this week. But if you're like me and you can't stand to wait, you don't have to wait. All you have to do is bring your card right back to either guest services, right outside that middle door, either guest services or New Spring store. You don't have to recite the Gettysburg address. Just say, I pray with Mark and give them your card. They'll give it to you today, and you can go home and watch it. 
I'm so glad you came today. I know I'm in overtime. I apologize for that. By the way, I know when you came in today, a lot of you struggled to get in. We have two services, and so I apologize for that. By the way, there's a little more room at 930, so if it's starting to get crowded, really tough at 930, there's a little more room at 930, and then also there's some great things coming up on Saturday night. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward to get ready for the offering. Could I just have heads up for just one second? Two weeks from this weekend, one of the most important weekends of our year, it's all about what New Spring Church is doing globally to reach people for Christ. I, I got to tell you, these, we're going to have a Saturday evening service and a Sunday. So normally if you just come to Sunday, I want to invite you to come Saturday night too because we're talking about what God is going to do through this church strategically to absolutely change the world. So if, if you're excited not only about what Jesus is doing in Wichita, but what he's doing around the world, please be part of that. I'll also be blogging about it at markandmaryalice.com. I'll be talking about that in the next 10 days or so about what we're doing around the world. In the-